Romans 12 verses 10 and through 12 issues the following challenge. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. This summer we're focusing on strengthening our serve by considering examples provided by the lives of several persons described in scripture or throughout church history. Tonight we take up the example of Benaiah, not necessarily particularly well known, but one whose extraordinary life models fulfillment of the challenge issued in Romans 12. We will see that he was definitely not slothful in zeal, He was remarkably fervent in spirit. His exemplary life issued from a strong determination to serve the Lord. So without further ado, let's dig into his story. Our takeoff point is 1 Chronicles 11, verses 23 through 25. 1 Chronicles 11. 22 says, And Benaiah the son of Jehoiada was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two heroes of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a man of great stature, five cubits tall. The Egyptian had in his hand a spear like a weaver's beam, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff, snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the 30, but he did not attain to the three, and David set him over his bodyguard. We're going to return to this account and particularly focus in upon that extraordinary feat of killing a lion in a pit on a snowy day. But first we need to understand the arc of Benaiah's life. And we begin that task by recognizing that the original language of verse 22 paints a more complete picture than does our English translation. The word translated as man literally means the son of a valiant man. Benaiah was the recipient of a proud heritage. His grandfather, identified in the original language of 2 Samuel 23, was renowned as a valiant man. Significantly, Benaiah is almost always identified as the son of Jehoiada. Not only was grandpa important, his father was important. 1 Chronicles 27.5 helps us understand why this is so important, where it tells us that the third commander for the third month was Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and here's Jehoiada's occupation, the chief priest. And his division were 24,000, that's Benaiah's division. What this tells us is that Benaiah not only came from a family of renown, but he was of the priestly line of Aaron. This would help explain his passion to serve the Lord. But the question remains, how did a man in the priestly line become one of David's mighty men? Very few priests became warriors. For this to have happened somewhere along the line, things must have turned south for Benaiah. How do we know this? 
We know this because all of David's mighty men described in 1 Chronicles and the parallel passage in 2 Samuel, all of them joined David in his years of flight from Saul. And all of those who joined David during his time are uniformly described as a very motley crew. 1 Samuel 22.2 says, And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, gathered to him, that's to David, and he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. So whether Benaiah came under suspicion of supporting David, or some other issue resulted in distress and bitterness of soul, we don't know. But we may safely assume that it was not things going well that led him to join David's fugitive band. Whatever forced him into this exile from home and family, Benaiah's faithful service quickly gained David's attention, led to greater and greater responsibility. Later, when David ascended the throne, we're told three specific times in Scripture that Benaiah was given command over David's personal bodyguard. That bodyguard consisted of foreigners, Cherethites and Pelethites. Interestingly, that's subclans of the Philistines who had joined David's force at some point in his years on the run. Benaiah was also identified as one of the 12 monthly commanders over the active army during David's reign. That's where we found out that his father was a chief priest. His faithful service extended through David's reign, became critically important as it neared his end. One of David's sons thought to illegitimately seize power and knew better than letting Benaiah in on his plans. 1 Kings 1 records what took place. Verse 5, Adonijah the son of Haggath exalted himself saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done this? He was also a very handsome man and he was born next after Absalom. He, this is Adonijah, conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah, that's David's commander-in-chief, and with Abiathar, the priest, who was probably the high priest at that point. And they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shimei, and Rei, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. This plot was exposed to David. He instantly turned to the men he trusted most. Verse 32 of chapter 2. King David said, call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, take with you the servants of your Lord. Have Solomon my son ride on, his own, on my mule and bring him down to Gion, and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place, and I've appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. Now listen to Benaiah's response. And Benaiah the son of Jehoiada answered the king, Amen. May the Lord the God of my Lord the King say so. As the Lord has been with my Lord the King, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of the Lord King David. That's exactly what they did. Solomon was anointed 
crowned king. So Benaiah was instrumental in seeing that Solomon was placed on his throne, but he was also the one to whom Solomon turned to consolidate that throne. After David's death, Adonijah was not through scheming. He even involved Bathsheba in his schemes, asking Solomon for an unthinkable benefit. Solomon knew what needed to be done. He knew who he could trust to do it. 1 Kings 2 records, the king Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God, do so to me and more also, if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. Now, therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David, my father has made me a house as he promised. Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down and he died. David had also realized before he died that as long as Joab lived, Solomon could not be safe from further intrigue. So before his death, David commissioned Solomon to execute the rebel. Once again, Solomon knew to whom he should turn. When this news came to Joab, for Joab had supported Adonijah, although he had not supported Absalom, he fled to the tent of the Lord, caught hold of the horns of the altar. He thought he would be safe. Make the story short. Solomon sends Benaiah, says, execute him today. Joab thinks he's safe at the horns of the altar, and he says, I will not come out. So Benaiah goes back. You can imagine his conflict of interest. Benaiah's of the priestly line. Joab is in the horns of, or by the horns of the altar, and he should be safe there. Solomon says, strike him down. And Benaiah does it. Because of his faithful service, he was elevated by Solomon. The king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army in the place of Joab. The king put Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. So Benaiah's life arc began as part of an illustrious family, a priestly family. It fell into the disgrace of being part of David's band of malcontents, but quickly rose to that of one of David's mighty men who became a highly trusted servant to David and his successor Solomon. With this life arc in mind, let's return to the account of the threefold exploits of this mighty man with which we began. This time, we're going to look at the parallel account in 2 Samuel 23 because it has some important additions. 2 Samuel 23, beginning verse 20. And Benaiah the son of Jehoiada was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. Really, that is impressive. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and won a name besides the mighty three men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three, and David sent him over his bodyguard. We will begin by briefly considering the first and third of these exploits before focusing upon the second as promised, and I promise we'll get there quickly. The first exploit contains a bit of a riddle. You may notice 
that the ESV translated one word differently in the first Chronicles and the second Samuel accounts of Benaiah's first recorded exploit. Second Chronicles struck, states that he struck down two heroes of Moab, while second Samuel states that he struck down two aerials of Moab. The reason for this seeming discrepancy is that the meaning of the original Hebrew word being translated has been lost. The second Samuel translation is actually a transliteration. Ariel is the way the original Hebrew word would sound if you tried to pronounce it in English. Guesses as to its meaning include lion-like men. Ariel sounds a little bit like the Hebrew word for lion. Or possibly military companies. Regardless of whether Benaiah took on two champions of Moab simultaneously or whether he took out two companies of Moabite army single-handedly, this stunning victory was widely known, reported, became part of the basis for his elevation in David's army to the position of mighty man. The third exploit mentioned would have especially endeared Benaiah to David because of its similarity to David's experience facing down Goliath. First Chronicles informed us that this Egyptian he took on was a man of great stature, five cubits tall. The shortest that he could possibly be, according to that, would be seven and a half foot. It's more likely that he was nine foot tall. This Egyptian champion was a giant, perhaps not as tall as Goliath, but still towering over everyone around. While David struck Goliath from a distance with the stone flung from his sling, Benaiah got up close and personal, getting right in his face, dropping his staff or his club to grab the Egyptian's massive spear, what we're told is it was about six inches in circumference, grabbing his Egyptian's massive spear, dispassing the giant with his own weapon. This was an impressive victory that would have added fuel to the fire of designating him as a mighty man. Now, as credible as those bookend exploits are, it's the central exploit that is so easily passed over, yet is perhaps the most incredible of them all. We're simply told that he also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. This scant account is ripe with meaning when we stop to consider what each phrase means. This is no military triumph, but it is as fraught or perhaps even more fraught with danger than the bookend exploits. So let's look at each phrase quickly. As we do, we discover that Benaiah faced first the worst possible foe, a lion. Ray Steadman noted in his message on this passage that certainly this was the most dangerous of all the enemies recorded here. For a lion is the most powerful of beasts, the most ferocious of adversaries. A lion is able with one blow of its paw to smash the human skull just like we would break an egg. He would slap you, your skull would cave in. A lion is able with its teeth to bite through any bone of the human body, including even the thigh bone. Stedman related how he watched a movie exhibited by Dr. Lewis Talbot, who'd been in, 
India on an occasion when a lion and a tiger had somehow accidentally fallen into the same pit. So they found out the answer to the proverbial question, who wins, lion or tiger? Someone was there with a movie camera, filmed the whole thing. As the cats circled one another, one would lash out at the other, they'd spit, snarl, leap about in the way that cats behave. Then suddenly they would grapple together and roll about spitting and biting. Then quicker than the eye could follow, something happened. And the tiger appeared to just cave in. He simply fell down. The lion had caught it at the right moment, had slapped it on the side of the head, crushed its skull, end of battle. For Benaiah, this was the worst possible foe he could meet. Brothers and sisters, if we desire to strengthen our serve, we may be sure that we will encounter foes that feel like the worst possible foe we could face. The foes we face are challenging, but the challenges do not end there. Benaiah not only met the worst possible foe, but he also met that foe in the worst possible place, a pit. Most commentators agree that the pit described in our text would have been some sort of cistern meaning that it would have been vital to the water supply for either Benaiah's hometown or David's fugitive army, depending upon the part of Benaiah's life in which this episode took place. In a minute, we'll see how this could have happened, but for now, we need focus upon the fact that a lion has fallen in the pit containing the crucial supply of water. That lion cannot get out, and if it is left there, long enough, eventually it will die and it will foul the water supply. Literally, the lives of those who depend upon this water source are endangered. Something must be done. But who's crazy enough to jump into a pit containing a raging lion that cannot get out? Stedman observed, if you're going to fight a lion, certainly the one place not to choose is a pit where you cannot get away, where you are at close quarters with this lion, there's no escape. You can't run away in a pit. Benaiah met the worst possible foe in the worst possible place. Not only that, he met this foe in the worst possible circumstances, a snowy day. This probably explains how the lion got there in the first place we know that snow is extremely slippery. It's likely that the lion did not intend to get into that pit, that it was running through the settlement, it slipped on the snow into the cistern. And we intuitively realize that the snowy conditions made it just as slippery for Benaiah as it did for the lion. Those snowy conditions have other effects as well. Snow numbs the fingers, makes it difficult to handle weapons. Snow makes footing treacherous and slippery. Snow blinds the eyes. The brightness of the sun upon the snow can actually destroy your vision temporarily. All of these factors were involved in the battle when Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, met the lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. He met the worst possible foe in the worst possible place under the worst possible circumstances. Some of you right now are thinking that this describes your life. Others are thinking that they see something like this looming around the corner. 
Others are remembering times that fit this description perfectly. But all of us should be wondering, how did he do it? We're not told specifically how he did it. One assumption we may safely make is that he was able to do this because of the kind of man that he was. We've already seen from the arc of his life that Beniah was scrupulously loyal, faithfully obedient both to God and to God's anointed. But there's one more clue in our account that helps us understand how Beniah was able to consistently win against the worst possible foes in the worst possible places under the worst possible circumstances. This clue is that God utilized names throughout Scripture to describe the characteristics of the identified persons. Biblical names are deliberately designed to give you a clue to the character of the individual. So the type of man Beniah was is revealed in his name, but not his name alone. He was well known in David's day. His name is mentioned often in Scripture. But in almost every instance, with rare exceptions, his name is listed as Beniah, the son of Jehoiada. This means that his father's name is also indicative of the type of man he was. If you take the meaning of those two names in the order of seniority, you get the secret of how to kill a lion on a snowy day. The father came first, so we need to explore the names in that order. Jehoiada means simply God knows. Jehoiada means God knows. Beniah means God builds. God knows, God builds. These twin truths are the secrets of how to meet a lion and to win. We must remember to rest upon the facts that God knows and God builds. God works sovereignly in our lives. Truth be told, he often works strangely in our lives. I doubt that Beniah was thrilled to see a lion loose and slipping into the settlement's water supply, but he realized that something must be done, and he accepted the assignment. The fact that God knows can be reassuring in the worst possible circumstances. Corey Ten Boom's story is illustrative of this truth. The Nazis had taken her and her sister, had put them in a concentra concentration camp under horrible conditions, along with thousands of other women. One day, after a terrible string of degrading experiences, those women were marched out single file and one by one were made to take off all their clothes, stand absolutely naked before a group of Nazi doctors, arrogant men, who were delighted to show their contempt for them. These modest, refined women had to stand naked before those examining doctors, and it was a terrible wrench to their spirits. Corey said that as she turned to her sister, Bessie, and said, Bessie, Remember, Jesus was naked on the cross. Her sister turned, her face lit up with a smile. Oh, that's right. Oh, that helps. God knows. He knows how you feel. Not only does God know, but God also builds. Out of the record of Paul's heartache and trouble and 
sorrow and privation and pain and suffering, he said, this light affliction is but for a moment and is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And I reckon that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. This truth is not only for heaven someday, but for now. Those who go through heartaches, pressure, problems, tribulation, always emerge when they're in God's hand, softened, chastened, mellowed, more loving, warmer, more compassionate. God is building. That's the whole point. It's the secret of survival. God knows. God builds. Thomas Watson was a Puritan pastor who had a flourishing ministry until all the Puritan pastors were forbidden to continue in their parishes. They were not even allowed to be within five miles of their previous parish, the church they had served. Because of the loss of income, many of these Puritan pastors became destitute. A number of them died in debtor's prison. Under these circumstances, to his fellow pastors, Watson in 1663 wrote his treatise entitled, All Things for Good. His first two and his primary points were as follows. The best things work for the godly. We like that. Second point, the worst things work for the godly. Watson, like Beniah, knew that God knows and God builds. In 1895, Andrew Murray was in England suffering from a terribly painful back, the result of an injury he'd suffered years before. He was staying with some friends, and one morning while he was eating his breakfast in his room, his hostess told him of a woman downstairs who was in great trouble, wanted to know if he had any advice for her. Andrew Murray handed her a paper he'd been writing on and said, just give her this advice I'm writing down for myself. It may be that she'll find it helpful. Here's what was written. Andrew Murray wrote, in time of trouble... Say first, he brought me here. It is by his will I am in this straight place, in that I will rest. Next, he will keep me here in his love and give me grace in this trial to behave as his child. Then say, he will make the trial a blessing, teaching me lessons he intends me to learn and working in me the grace he means to bestow. And last say, in his good time, he can bring me out again. How and when, he knows. Therefore say, I am here, number one, by God's appointment. Number two, in his keeping. Number three, under his training. Number four, for his time. That's how you kill lions on snowy days. Dearly beloved, the world is your pit. The lion is your battle. You are Beniah. Today is your snowy day. You can win if you remember that you're here by God's appointment, in his keeping, under his training, for his time. That's how you kill lions on snowy days. Let's go to him in prayer. 
Father, we are grateful for the example of this faithful servant of yours who faithfully served your anointed, both David and Solomon. We thank you that you were able to help him to understand that the toughest assignments in the toughest circumstances in the toughest places were things that you had equipped him and would enable him to handle because you know and you build. Help us to not listen to the lies of the enemy who wants to get us to believe that you don't know and that you're not building. You are all-knowing, you are all-powerful, and you are at work. Help us to be a little bit more like Benaiah this week, and we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You want to lead us in a prayer of thanks for the food?